Book Two, Chapter Three of the Lancashire Witches. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Andy Minter. The Lancashire Witches, A Romance of Pendle Forest, by William Harrison Ainsworth. Book Two, Pendle Forest. Chapter Three, The Boggart's Glen. The manor of Reed, it has been said, was skirted by a deep woody ravine of three or four miles in length, extending from the little village of Sabden in Pendle Forest to within a short distance of Whaley, and through this gully flowed a stream which, taking its rise near Barley at the foot of Pendle Hill, added its waters to those of the Calder at a place called Cock Bridge. In summer, or in dry seasons, this stream proceeded quietly enough, and left the greater part of its stony bed unoccupied. But in winter, or after continuous rains, it assumed all the character of a mountain torrent, and swept everything before it. A narrow bridle-road led through the ravine to Sabden, and along it, after quitting the park, the cavalcade proceeded, headed by Nicholas. The little river danced merrily past them, singing as it went, the sunshine sparkling on its bright clear waters, and glittering on the pebbles beneath them. Now the stream would chafe and foam against some larger impediment to its course. Now it would dash down some rocky height and form a beautiful cascade. Then it would hurry on for some time, with little interruption, till, stayed by a projecting bank, it would form a small deep basin, where, beneath the far-cast shadow of an overhanging oak, or under its huge, twisted and denuded roots, the angler might be sure of finding the speckled trout, the dainty grayling, or their mutual enemy, the voracious Jack. The ravine was well wooded throughout, and in many parts singularly beautiful, from the disposition of the timber on its bank, as well as from the varied form and character of the trees. Here might be seen an acclivity covered with waving birch, or a top crowned with a mountain ash. There, on a smooth expanse of greensward, stood a range of noble elms, whose mighty arms stretched completely across the ravine. Farther on there were chestnut and walnut trees, willows with hoary stems and silver leaves, almost encroaching upon the stream, larches upon the heights, and here and there, upon some sandy eminence, a spreading beech-tree. For the most part the bottom of the glen was overgrown with brushwood, and where its sides were too abrupt to admit the growth of larger trees, they were matted with woodbine and brambles. Out of these would sometimes start a sharp pinnacle or fantastically formed crag, adding greatly to the picturesque beauty of the scene. On such points were not unfrequently found perched a hawk, a falcon, or some large bird of prey, for the gully, with its brakes and thickets, was a favourite haunt of the feathered tribe. The hollies, of which there were plenty, with their green prickly leaves and scarlet berries, afforded shelter and support to the blackbird. The thorns were frequented by the thrush, and numberless lesser songsters filled every other tree. In the covert there were pheasants and partridges in abundance, and snipe and wildfowl resorted to the river in winter. Thither also, at all seasons, repaired the stately heron to devour the finny race, and thither came, on like errand, the splendidly plumed kingfisher. The magpie chattered, the jay screamed, and flew deeper into the woods as the horseman approached and the shy bittern hid herself amid the rushes. Occasionally, too, was heard the deep ominous croaking of a raven. Hitherto the glen had been remarkable for its softness and beauty, but it now began to assume a savage and sombre character. 
The banks drew closer together and became rugged and precipitous, while the trees met overhead, and intermingling their branches formed a canopy impervious to the sun's rays. The stream was likewise contracted, and its current, which, owing to the gloom, looked black as ink, flowed swiftly on, as if anxious to escape to livelier scenes. A large raven, which had attended the horsemen all the way, now alighted near them, and croaked ominously. This part of the glen was in very ill repute, and was never traversed even at noonday without apprehension. Its wild and savage aspect, its horrent precipices, its shaggy woods, its strangely shaped rocks, and tenebrous depths, where every imperfectly seen object appeared doubly frightful, all combined to invest it with mystery and terror. No one willingly lingered here, but hurried on, afraid of the sound of his own footsteps. No one dared to gaze at the rocks, lest he should see some hideous hobgoblin peering out of their fissures. No one glanced at the water, for fear some terrible kelpie, with twining snakes for hair and scaly hide, should issue from it and drag him down, to devour him with his shark-like teeth. Among the common folk this part of the ravine was known as the Boggart's Glen, and was supposed to be haunted by mischievous beings who made the unfortunate wanderer their sport. For the last half-mile the road had been so narrow and intricate in its windings that the party were obliged to proceed singly, but this did not prevent conversation, and Nicholas, throwing the bridle over Robin's neck, left the sure-footed animal to pursue his course unguided, while he himself, leaning back, chatted with Roger Nowell. At the entrance of the gloomy gorge above described, Robin came to a stand, and refusing to move or to jerk from his master, the latter raised himself and looked forward to see what could be the cause of the stoppage. No impediment was visible, but the animal obstinately refused to go on, though urged both by word and spur. This stoppage necessarily delayed the rest of the cavalcade. Well aware of the ill reputation of the place, when Simon Sparshot and the grooms found that Robin would not go on, they declared that he must see the boggart, and urged the squire to turn back or some mischief would befall him. But Nicholas, though not without misgivings, did not like to yield thus, especially when urged on by Roger Nowell. Indeed, the party could not get out of the ravine without going back nearly a mile, while Sabden was only half that distance from them. What was to be done? Robin still continued obstinate, and for the first time paid no attention to his master's commands. The poor animal was evidently a prey to violent terror, and snorted and reared while his limbs were bathed in cold sweat. Dismounting, and leaving him in charge of Roger Nowell, Nicholas walked on by himself to see if he could discover any cause for the horse's alarm, and he had not advanced far when his eye rested upon a blasted oak, forming a conspicuous object on a crag before him, on a scathed branch of which sat the raven. Cock, cock, cock! "'A cursed bird! It is thou who hast frightened my horse!' cried Nicholas. "'Would I had a crossbow or an archivist to stop thy croaking!' And as he picked up a stone to cast at the raven, a crashing noise was heard among the bushes high up on the rock, and the next moment a huge fragment dislodged from the cliff rolled down, and would have crushed him if he had not nimbly avoided it. "'Cock! Cock! Cock!' Nicholas almost fancied horse-laughter was mingled with the cries of the bird. The raven nodded its head and expanded its wings, and the squire, whose recent experience had prepared him for any wonder, fully expected to hear it speak, but it only croaked loudly and exultingly, 
or if it laughed, the sound was like the creaking of rusty hinges. Nicholas did not like it at all, and he resolved to go back, but ere he could do so, he was startled by a buffet on the ear, and turning angrily round to see who had dealt it, he could distinguish no one, but at the same moment received a second buffet on the other ear. The raven croaked merrily. "'Would I could wring thy neck, accursed bird!' cried the enraged squire. Scarcely was the vindictive wish uttered than a shower of blows fell upon him, and kicks from unseen feet were applied to his person. All the while the raven croaked merrily and flapped his big black wings. Infuriated by the attack, the squire hit right and left manfully, and dashed out his feet in every direction, but his blows and kicks only met the empty air, while those of his unseen antagonist told upon his own person with increased effect. The spectacle seemed to afford infinite amusement to the raven. The mischievous bird almost crowed with glee. There was no standing it any longer, so amid a perfect hurricane of blows and kicks, and with the infernal voice of the raven ringing in his ears, the squire took to his heels. On reaching his companions, he found they had not fared much better than himself. The two grooms were belabouring each other lustily, and Master Potts was exercising his hunting-whip on the broad shoulders of Sparshot, who in return was making him acquainted with the taste of a stout ash-plant. Assailed in the same manner as the squire, and naturally attributing the attack to their nearest neighbours, they waited for no explanation, but fell upon each other. Richard Asherton and Roger Nowell endeavoured to interfere and separate the combatants, and in doing so received some hard knocks for their pains, but all their pacific efforts were fruitless, until the squire appeared, and telling them they were merely the sport of hobgoblins, they desisted, but still the blows fell heavily on them as before, proving the truth of Nicholas's assertion. Meanwhile the squire had mounted Robin, and finding the horse no longer exhibit the same reluctance to proceed, he dashed at full speed through the haunted glen, but even above the clatter of hoofs and the noise of the party galloping after him, he could hear the hoarse exulting croaking of the raven. As the gully expanded, and the sun once more found its way through the trees and shone upon the river, Nicholas began to breathe more freely, but it was not until fairly out of the wood that he relaxed his speed. Not caring to enter into any explanation of the occurrence, he rode a little apart to avoid conversation, and as the others, who were still smarting from the blows they had received, were in no very good humour, a sullen silence prevailed throughout the party, as they mounted the bare hillside, in the direction of the few scattered huts constituting the village of Sabden. A blight seemed to have fallen upon the place. Roger Noel, who had visited it a few months ago, could scarcely believe his eyes, so changed was its appearance. His inquiries as to the cause of its altered condition were everywhere met by the same answer. The poor people were all bewitched. Here a child was ill of a strange sickness, tossed and tumbled in its bed, and contorted its limbs so violently that its parents could scarcely hold it down. Another family was afflicted in a different manner, two of its number pining away and losing strength daily, as if a prey to some consuming disease. In a third, another child was sick, and vomited pins, nails, and other extraordinary substances. A fourth household was tormented by an imp in the form of a monkey, who came at night and pinched them all black and blue, spilt the milk, broke the dishes and platters, got under the bed, and, raising it to the roof, let it fall with a terrible crash, putting them all in mental terror. 
In the next cottage there was no end to calamities, though they took a more absurd form. Sometimes the fire would not burn, or when it did it emitted no heat, so that the pot would not boil, nor the meat roast. Then the oat-cakes would stick to the bake-stone, and no force would get them away from it till they were burned and spoiled. The milk turned sour, the cheese became so hard that not even rats' teeth could gnaw it, the stools and settles broke down if sat upon, and the list of petty grievances was completed by a whole side of bacon being devoured in a single night. Roger Nowell and Nicholas listened patiently to a detail of all these grievances, and expressed strong sympathy for the sufferers, promising assistance and redress if possible. All the complainants taxed either Mother Demdike or Mother Chattox with afflicting them, and said they had incurred the anger of the two malevolent old witches by refusing to supply them with poultry, eggs, milk, butter, or other articles which they had demanded. Master Potts made ample notes of the strange relations, and took down the name of every cottager. At length they arrived at the last cottage, and here a man with a very doleful countenance besought them to stop and listen to his tale. "'What is the matter, friend?' demanded Roger Nowell, halting with the others. "'Are you bewitched like your neighbours?' "'Through I am, your worship,' replied the man, "'and I hope you may be able to deliver me. You must know that somehow I was unlucky enough last Yule to offend Mother Chattox, and ever since it's all gone wrong with me. A good wife can never make butter come without sticking a red-hot poker into churn.' and last week when our brindled sow and had fifteen tit litter and fine ones as ever you've seen sayin on em dead sad work mesters the week afore that cow died and week afore her told may so that all my stock be gone oh woe's me woe's me night prospers with me my poor dame is beside herself and childa seem possessed I tried every remedy, but without success. I followed the old witch home, plucked a handle of thatch from her roof, sprinkled it with salt and water, burned and buried this at the change at noon. No use, masters. Then again I got an horseshoe, heated it red hot, quenched it in brine, and nailed it to threshold with three nails, head upward. No more use, no t'other. Then I'd taken salt water and put it in a bottle with three rusty nails, needles, and pins, but I haven't found that which has suffered thereby, and lastly I let myself blood when the moon was at full and in opposition to Toad Ag's planet, and mingling it with salt, I burnt it to a trivet in hopes of affecting her. But without avail, for I seed her two days ago, and she flouted me and scoffed at me. What mun I do, good masters? What mun I do? Have you offended any on besides Mother Chattox, my poor fellow? said Noel. Oh, Mother Demdike may be a worship, replied the man. You suspect Mother Demdike and Mother Chattox of bewitching you, said Potts, taking out his memorandum book and making a note in it. "'Your name, good fellow?' "'Ubfrey, a Wells, a Benz, a Thomas, a Sabden,' replied the man. "'Is that all?' asked Potts. <laughs> "'What more would you have?' said Richard. "'The description is sufficiently particular.' "'Scarcely precise enough,' returned Potts. "'However, it may do. "'We will help you in the matter, good Humphrey, etc., etc. "'You shall not be troubled with these pestilent witches much longer. "'The neighbourhood shall be cleared of them.' 
"'I'm right glad to hear, Mester,' replied the man. "'You promise much, Master Potts,' observed Richard. "'Not a jot more than I am able to perform,' replied the attorney. "'That remains to be seen,' said Richard. "'If these old women are as powerful as represented, they will not be so readily defeated.' "'There you are in error, Master Richard,' replied Potts. "'The devil, whose vassals they are, will deliver them into our hands.' "'Granting what you say to be correct, the devil must have little regard for his servants, if he abandons them so easily,' observed Richard dryly. "'What else can you expect from him?' cried Potts. "'It is his custom to ensnare his victims, and then leave them to their fate.' "'You are rather describing the course pursued by certain members of your own profession, Master Potts,' said Richard. "'The devil behaves with greater fairness to his clients.' "'You are not going to defend him, I hope, sir,' said the attorney. "'No, I only desire to give him his due,' returned Richard. <laughs> laughed Nicholas. "'You'd better have done, Master Potts. You'll never get the better in the argument. But we must be moving, or we shall not get our business done before nightfall. As to you, Numps,' he added to the poor man, "'we will not forget you. If anything can be done for your relief, rely on it. It shall not be neglected.' "'Aye, aye,' said Noel. "'The matter shall be looked into, and speedily.' "'And the witches brought to justice,' said Potts. "'Comfort yourself with that, good Humphrey, etc. "'Aye, comfort yourself with that,' observed Nicholas. Soon after this they entered a wide, dreary waste, forming the bottom of the valley, lying between the heights of Padium and Pendle Hill, and while wending their way across it they heard a shout from the hillside, and presently afterwards perceived a man, mounted on a powerful black horse, galloping swiftly towards them. The party awaited his approach, and the stranger speedily came up. He was a small man, habited in a suit of rusty black, and bore a most extraordinary and marked resemblance to Master Potts. He had the same perky features, the same parchment complexion, the same yellow forehead as the little attorney. So surprising was the likeness that Nicholas unconsciously looked round for Potts, and beheld him staring at the newcomer in angry wonder. End of chapter 3